the greed economy is killing us. We are so steeped in this commodification that it's hard to distinguish between being a consumer and being a citizen. Seeing the documentary The Corporation, it opened my eyes. When the team behind independent documentary The New Corporation went to market the film last year, they were rejected by Twitter for promotion on the platform for, quote, political, sensitive, and inappropriate content. The film's co-director, writer, and producer happens to be UBC law professor Joel Backen, who is now taking Twitter and the Canadian government to court, arguing that because of the social platform's central role in democratic discourse, it should be legally prohibited from restricting political and social speech that causes no harm. On this episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, we talk with Backen about corporate power, regulating big tech, and why he thinks Bill C-10 didn't go far enough. History. Shameful. Global pandemic. What do we do now? Let's do a tax cut. The pandemic revealed that we need to contain corporate power. The democracy is trying to breathe. We can't breathe because of the weight of poverty is not there. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Are you actually going to challenge the power of corporations? This is what the 2020s will be about. You have to really ask yourself, what was your role in this moment in history? Hi, my name is Joel Backen. I'm a professor of law at the Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. Uh, and also an author and a filmmaker. I went to law school at uh, the University of Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. I then uh, continued my legal studies at Dalhousie, where I got a Canadian law degree and then went to Harvard to do graduate work, after which I clerked for the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, Brian Dixon, and went straight into teaching law. And after a little while um, of doing sort of traditional legal scholarship and academic work, which I continue to do, I decided I wanted to reach a larger audience with, uh, with my ideas. Uh, so I began writing uh, more popular books or trade books and making documentary films. In the early 2000s, I made a film called The Corporation based on a book of mine of the same name. Did a few other things in between, and then in 2020, released a sequel book, The New Corporation with Penguin Random House, and made a documentary film based on that, which is how we end up here, because we were trying to promote that documentary film on Twitter, and Twitter censored us. So being a lawyer, I did what lawyers do, and decided to sue them uh, for censoring us under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And that takes us up to the moment. The New Corporation is obviously a sequel to your initial film, which explored corporate power. Do you want to talk a little bit more about where that film picks up in terms of its exploration of big tech? Yeah, I, I um, was sitting and watching the first film, um, about uh, 2014, it was actually the 10th anniversary of the first film. And I was, we had rented a theater and, you know, had champagne and snacks and a party. And halfway through the film, you know, I thought there's really nothing to celebrate because everything we talked about in the first film and I talked about in the first book had gotten worse. 
Climate change had gone from being a crisis to an existential crisis. Uh, the same with economic and social and racial equality. Uh, inequality was, was worse. Democracy was more on the ropes and under threat from corporate power. Corporations had become bigger. They become more powerful. And we now had tech, uh, which when we made the first film, we didn't. And big tech was, you know, whether it's Amazon or Uber or Twitter or Facebook, you know, was in increasingly just at the core of our lives and controlling things. And really, people were becoming worried about the threat that it posed to, to democracy, about its monopoly power, all of that. But at the same time that all of that bad stuff was happening, corporations were saying, we've become good. We, we're the good guys now. We're going we're gonna to save the world. We're going to solve all of its problems, you know, we'll deal with climate change and inequality. And so you had this big push happening in the corporate sector to say that they were good while everything was getting bad. And I thought, well, that's an interesting contradiction and it needs to be explored. And what I found out, uh, you know, we went to Davos and we talked to a lot of people in the corporate world and we talked to activists and we talked to politicians. And what I found out was that there was this strange kind of quid pro quo that was happening where corporations were saying, we're good now, therefore let us run your schools and your water systems and we don't really need government anymore. We can take control because we're no longer just about making money. We're about making the world a better place and governments aren't working. So why don't you just let us take charge? Now that's an oversimplification of what I heard in my research, but basically uh, that pretty well sums it up. Uh, and that's why the subtitle of the book is how good corporations are bad for democracy. So take us back to last year. You go to market the film and you attempt to boost the trailer for these posts on social media. Yeah. So when you go, you know, if you pull out your phone, your listeners pull out their phone and find any random tweet and go to the bottom right hand corner and you'll see three vertical lines, uh, one of those little things. If you click on that, then it'll show uh, your engagement for that tweet to show how many people are looking at it and things like that. And then if you go to the very bottom, you scroll down further, there'll be a little link that says, you know, if you want to engage more people, if you want to reach more of your followers, then click here. And that will take you to a page where uh, you can pay them money. So if you, I have a few thousand followers, if I just do that on my phone right now, it'll tell me that I can pay anywhere between sort of $750 a week to $30,000 a week to reach more of my followers and to reach people who aren't my followers. And the reason why, if you're an independent film company like us with an independent film, the reason why you want to do that is because when you just use their free service, uh, what they call organic tweets, you only really reach a small percentage, three to five percentage of your followers, and you don't reach any non-followers. So it's really quite useless as a tool if you really want to get your word out to all of your followers and, and beyond your followers. And so for that, you have to pay. And the interesting thing to know is that over the years, Twitter has decreased the number of people you reach with their free tweets and therefore kind of pushed people who want to reach more to pay them. And that's part of their monetization model. So, so you really have no choice on the platform if you want to actually have a voice 
to use their promotion service, which they want you to use because that's how they make money. So we did that. Uh, we tried to do it and we were rejected uh, initially by a bot. You know, we immediately got back an email that said, you've breached our policies. And we're like, what? Um, so we, you know, wrote back. And I think the next response was by another bot saying, these are the policies you've breached. If you want to find out what they are, click here, here, and here. And then, so we escalated it further and we finally got a human being on the third try. And that, that human being, we went back and forth with, and that person uh, rejected, kept saying, sorry, but we're rejecting it sort of four more times using four different reasons. So first it was too political, then it was inappropriate, then it was, it was sensitive targeting, then it was cause advertising. So they just keep throwing these things at us, different ones, different reasons. And finally, we said, okay, look, this is a credible documentary film. You know, it's made by a law professor. It's, it's um, broadcast by Bell Media's Crave, a, a major broadcaster. Uh, it's, it's been, it's won accolades. It's been, you know, it was named the Globe and Mail as one of its top 2020 films. It had a rave review in Variety magazine, the industry standard. Even Forbes magazine, a business magazine, said this is, you know, the documentary you have to see. So there was nothing flaky or, or weird or bizarre or conspiracy theory or any of that about it. It was full of Harvard and Berkeley professors and business leaders, blue chip business leaders and politicians and activists, the mayor of Barcelona, city councilor from Seattle. Um, there was nothing fringe about it. It was quite mainstream, really. Yeah, it had a point of view, but it was quite mainstream. And yet, yet, uh, they rejected it. Uh, and I urge you, you, know, you could go online, go to our website, www.thenewcorporation.movie and you can watch the trailer because it was the trailer that was the problem according to them the tweet that we put together had a link to the trailer and they said that the trailer violated their policy so i urge you to watch it and you know assess for yourself whether this is something that should be censored right speaking to corporate power do you think if perhaps the film was being distributed by Sony, for example, you would have received the same response. Yeah, well, here's the interesting thing. I mean, corporations um, advertise all the time on Twitter, and they don't just advertise to sell their stuff. Uh, they advertise to sell their image. They advertise to say that uh, they care about the world, that they care about the environment, that they're allies with Black Lives Matter, that they care about inequality. So, so they're doing all that without any problem. And our film is really a criticism of that whole movement saying you say you care, but really you don't. I mean, that's, you know, kind of one of the arguments in the film is that a lot of this stuff is greenwashing, bluewashing, you know, whatever kind of washing you want to use. And, and that's, that's part of our case. So it's like, they're allowed to do that, but we're not allowed to do that. And it's true. I mean, I can only speculate, but it's probably the case that if Netflix or Sony Pictures or any of the, the sort of big studios were uh, promoting a film of theirs, um, it's unlikely they would get this treatment. Um, but again, I can only speculate on that. I only know what happened to us. Why did you ultimately decide to take this to court? Well, I mean, I think there are two reasons. One is a very practical reason. Obviously, as a filmmaker, uh, I want the film to get out to people. You know, I, 
I make films, I write books because I have a message that I want to communicate to people and I want it to get to people. And in practical tw terms, uh, Twitter has become kind of the crucial platform for promoting independent films. It's where journalists, reviewers, uh, industry executives, it's, it's where the people you want to reach, uh, let alone just citizens, uh, it's where the people you want to reach with the fact that you made a film and that it's out there. It's where they, it's where they go. And we had been, um, we had qualified for the long list for the Oscars as best documentary. And we wanted to get on the short list. And one of the things that happens in Oscar season is companies sort of mount these campaigns to try to get the attention of the Academy and try to make the shortlist. And we want to do that. And Twitter was a really crucial vehicle for us. You know, we don't have the resources to buy big billboards and ad campaigns and things like that. And so for an independent film company, Twitter is really, really, really important. Uh, and we were blocked. We also, uh, though we had a distribution deal in Canada, as I mentioned, the film's broadcast on Crave, and we also had a theatrical deal with Elevation Films, uh, we, we didn't have distribution deals in other places. And again, one of the ways to gain some international attention for a film is on Twitter. Uh, again, we, we don't have the resources to be able to you know, be running ads in Australia and across the United States, but Twitter is a really good vehicle for, for getting that kind of attention. But, you know, it wasn't just practical reasons. There are principled reasons as well. And the principal reason is that Twitter committed a wrong, and we argue an illegal wrong, in muzzling our freedom of expression. And there's a real fear and a real concern that moving forward, it's going to do that more and more. Uh, you know, we may cheer when hate mongers and, and misogynists and discriminatory and racist speech is, is barred by Twitter. And, and I cheer. I, I think in, in our legal argument, we say they should be able to do that. But what they should not be able to do is to censor speech that lies at the very core of our democratic discourse that is contributing to the dialogue about what we're supposed to be as a society that's attempting to change policy and that's doing it with rational and reasoned argument. That is the type of thing that is very worrisome when we start to see that kind of thing censored. And so as a matter of principle, not only because of what Twitter did to us, but because of what Twitter may do in the future to many others with messages that Twitter doesn't like, we thought it was uh, really important to to pursue this legal action. So where does the Canadian government fit into this suit? We filed two cases. One of them is against Twitter, and the other is against the Canadian government. And where Canada fits into this suit is that Twitter is not subject to the charter. It is a private actor. It's a, a for-profit corporation. It's not part of government. The charter only applies to government. And so we can't directly make an argument that Twitter is subject to the Constitution. That's what Donald Trump is doing in the United States. And inevitably, he'll lose that case because it's a losing case. So we don't make that argument. The argument we make is not that Twitter is subject to the charter, but that the government of Canada is definitely subject to the charter and that the charter imposes on the government of Canada a duty 
to take proactive action and regulate Twitter in order to protect the freedom of expression of Canadians. That's our argument. And it's grounded in case law that the Supreme Court of Canada has put out there, precedents, that basically say, says that freedom of expression and freedom of association, another freedom they've developed this argument in, doesn't just provide a right to people to be protected from the government. It also provides a right to people to be protected by the government. And it's that argument that we leverage and that we say, that's what we're asking for here. We're asking for Canadians who are on Twitter, which has become this kind of key public arena in Canada's democracy. We're asking that they, that we, the film production group, that you protect us from Twitter taking away our free speech. That's what we're asking of Canada. So is this the kind of language that Bill C-10 should have been grounded in? And I'm, I'm interested in what your thoughts are on that, Bill, even though it appears that an election call will probably preempt its passage. Yeah, that's a great question. And the, the thing is this, that the government of Canada, which is the only government in the country that can regulate the platforms because of our federalism system, knows that it needs to do something to regulate the platform. So there's it's already, there's the Digital Privacy Act. So there are some protections of people's privacy when they're involved in social media and other uh, internet activity. Bill C-10 was designed to provide some further protections where platforms are involved in basically the same kind of activity that broadcasters are involved in. So the idea of Bill C-10 is in its simplest terms, to subject the platforms to the Broadcasting Act. So again, it's kind of a baby step. It's like, okay, over here, we've protected people's privacy. Over here, we're saying, well, these platforms kind of act like broadcasters or do some of the same things like Netflix, for example. So, but let's be fair to the broadcasters and subject them as well to the same kinds of regulatory norms that we subject broadcasters. And then a third sort of leg of the whole thing is that the government of Canada has now announced that it is going to bring in legislation that protects people from hate speech and hate crimes on the internet. And I applaud all of this. I think it's great. But our argument is it doesn't go far enough, that all those things are good and all those things need to be done. But what our Supreme Court of Canada has said is that when government enters a particular regulatory or legislative domain, it has to do so in a way that comports with the charter. And so our argument is you've kind of entered this domain. I mean, you're in there, you know, you're, you're starting to regulate the platforms. Well, if you're doing that, you have to do it in a way that comports with the charter. And what that means is that not only do you have to protect people from hate speech, not only do you have to protect privacy, but you have to protect the constitutional value of freedom of expression. And so you have to pass legislation that does that. Well, you also bring up a really interesting point in that all of these decisions to defer your content were made in California, not here in Canada. Absolutely. And that is another uh, absolutely key piece of this is, is the matter of Canadian cultural sovereignty. We've worked hard in this country to deal with the elephant next door. 
uh, we created Canadian content uh, standards, which I think overall has been an amazing experiment. It's it's really sort of allowed for our cultural industries and our and our artists to actually be very successful. I mean, very successful. I'm thinking of you know people like Neil Young or Brian Adams or just or The Weeknd. I mean, there are just uh, so many Canadian artists in the music industry that have benefited from the Canada content requirements uh, or in terms of television, you know, you think of shows like uh, Corner Gas or Schitt's Creek or Kim's Convenience. I mean, you know, these are shows that are now out there in the world and they were beneficiaries of Canada content, as is our film. So we've taken very seriously, it's been a real kind of obsession for us in Canada. How do we deal with the fact that, you know, we're living next to a cultural elephant, that if we just allowed the free market to operate willy-nilly, we would have no cultural industries. We just, everything we would be doing would be dictated by the U.S. uh, cultural industry. And, And I think that's an amazing thing. And I think it's something that we as Canadians should be very, very proud of. But then, you know, in light of all of that, how is it that we can allow a company like Twitter based in San Francisco in California in the United States to have complete control over what happens on a platform that is operating as a central part of Canada's democratic infrastructure and of Canada's cultural life. That just seems that seems wrong as a matter of principle uh, and wrong in terms of policy. So one of the real issues in this case is the issue of cultural sovereignty for Canada. Again, something uh, that we've been concerned about in this country for decades. I want to segue it because such a huge part of our audience are based in in the Canadian broadcast sector. A lot of the things that you talk about in your documentaries in terms of publicly traded corporate power structures and putting shareholder returns above things like employee well-being and longevity, most of those can be applied to big Canadian media. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on the sustainability of these models where hundreds of people are laid off every year, which has become a way of doing business. Yeah, absolutely. It's why it's why I write my books and it's why I make my films. I mean, let's be clear. I'm not I don't conclude any of my projects by saying we shouldn't have corporations. I don't conclude by saying we shouldn't have markets. What I say is that we need to understand there are some very important values, be it social values about people's health and welfare. Uh, about their incomes, about their job security, about their ability to live decent lives, to get educated, all of those things, to have clean water. There's a whole set of values about those things that corporations really are very clumsy at dealing with. And the reason they're clumsy is not because the people who run them and work in them are bad people or deficient in some way. It's because the corporation has been created by our legal system to always prioritize its bottom line because it has fiduciary obligations to its shareholders that it needs to serve first. And everything else has to be seen in regard to that. So if you create an institution like that, it's no surprise that it's going to be inconsistent, clumsy, inadequate when dealing with other types of values. 
You know, why, why should a corporation voluntarily embrace social or environmental standards that cut back its ability to serve its shareholders? A, it's not going to happen. And B, if it did, the managers and directors would be accused of acting unlawfully. They'd be breaching their fiduciary obligations. So all of my work basically starts from that idea that this is a legal institution with legal imperatives that make it very ill-equipped to deal with social and environmental values. And that governments are actually perfectly equipped to deal with social and environmental values. In a democracy, that's why we make governments. That's what we do. Now, do they work perfectly? No. But institutionally, when they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, they're protecting all those other values that corporations, when they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, can't really protect, at least not when they uh, contradict their fundamental obligation, which is their fiduciary obligation to their shareholders. So it's, it's, it's not like I, I don't take aim at uh, broadcasters of corporate broadcasters, Bell Media, who's our broadcaster, or or Rogers, or or any of the others. I don't take aim at Twitter or Facebook. I I, I don't say that they're mean or bad or, or or even wrong in terms of what they're doing. What I do say is that let's not be beguiled by the notion that we can just let them decide how they're going to serve social and environmental values. We have to require them to meet certain standards through democratically enacted laws, or we're going to be in big trouble because they're ultimately conflicted when they're left to regulate themselves or to you know, run democratic uh, expressive platforms or whatever. So we need to regulate them. Um, and I think that democracies have worked best when they are properly regulated in a way that is democratically accountable. What I show in the film and what I write about in my book is that corporations, including the ones who say that they're so wonderful and good and sustainable and socially responsible, have been on a major campaign for the last 40 years to push back regulation, to push back taxes, uh, to push back social provision and privatize everything. That's you know well-documented in my book and many other places. And so my argument isn't we need to get rid of corporations. I think they're very good at some of the things they do, but we need to properly balance what they and their needs are against what the broader society's needs are. Do you have a thought you want to close on, Joel? I, mean, I guess the only point that hasn't come up and, and that I think is worth making is, and I alluded to it, but you know, former President Trump has, is also suing Twitter. Uh, we had the idea first. I'm sure he got it from us. But anyways, uh, he's also suing Twitter. And uh, I just want to make it very clear that our case is very different. Um, his argument is that Twitter is like government and should have should be directly governed by the American Constitution. And the American Constitution has a very absolutist approach to free speech. It basically says anything goes. Our argument is not that. Our argument is that Canada should regulate Twitter in accordance with what our Supreme Court of Canada has said our free speech guarantee in the charter means. And what our Supreme Court of Canada has said is that free speech is not the Wild West. Free speech has to be balanced against other important values like equality, 
uh, like democracy, like truth, all of those things. So we're very, very different than the United States in that way. Uh, we do not take the view that anything goes. We have a regulated marketplace of ideas, and the Supreme Court of Canada has said that's fine. And so we're arguing for that. In our Twitter case, so we're suing both the government of Canada and Twitter, in the case where we're suing Twitter, we're not saying the charter should apply directly to Twitter. What we're saying is that Twitter is governed by contract law. It's governed by the user agreements it enters with its users, which is what included the various policies that they said we breached. And contract law, the Supreme Court of Canada has told us, is governed by the charter. So it's kind of a two-step process where we're saying that uh, contract law has to be consistent with the charter's value of freedom of expression. And therefore, contract law cannot allow Twitter to do the things that it did to us and that it could do to others under its contractual relationships with its users. So both arguments are, are a lot more nuanced and subtle than Donald Trump's, and they also allow for uh, a lot more room for Twitter uh, and or the government of Canada to uh, restrict speech that is harmful, that is uh, racist, that's misogynist, that's discriminatory, and so on and so forth, all in accordance with Canadian free speech law. Let's talk about where people can check out the new corporation. If you're in Canada, it's uh, broadcast on Crave, and that is the easiest way to find it. If you're in uh, a number of other countries, and I'm not sure the full list yet, I think Israel and Australia are currently uh, showing it in theaters and are broadcasting it. If you're not in those countries and you want to watch it, the best way to do so is to contact us because we arrange community screenings. So if you're a, a for a fairly nominal charge, um, if you're a group, a book club or, or a trade union or a business organization, uh, and you have a group of people that want to watch the film, uh, get in touch with us, go to our website, thenewcorporation.movie, or go to my website, joelbacken.com, and you can find out how to arrange a community screening if there isn't currently distribution in your domain. And you can buy the book anywhere on um, large internet retailers, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's as, well, yeah. as, well, as well as in your local bookstore. Uh, and it's the same name, The New Corporation. The subtitle is How Good Corporations Are Bad for Democracy. There's so much irony in that. <laughs> uh, there's just endless irony everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this, Joel. Thank you. I've greatly enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Alison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.